This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear David Means' story, The Tree Line, Kansas, 1934, which was published in The New Yorker in 2010. Five days he had listened to Barnes, staying quiet, holding back on saying much until that last day when Barnes turned and said, Look, Lee, all we're doing out here is wasting time. Carson isn't coming. I mean, hell, let's face it, it's unlikely that he's going to arrive down that road. The story was chosen by Thomas McGuane, whose own stories have been appearing in the magazine since 1994. His latest collection, Crow Fair, came out in March. Hi, Tom. Good morning. Is is it morning? (laughs) (laughs) No, we're afternoon now. (laughs) Are we really? Well, I'm happy to be here with you. So... How did you first read this story? Did you read it in the magazine in 2010? I did. I read it when it first came out, and then when we wanted to do one of these podcasts, I went back to see if I was right in liking it so much. (laughs) And in fact, you know, it's such a strong story narratively that you don't notice how well-made it is, and it's so Mm well-built that going back and doing that again was a great exercise in examining David Means's methods, which are, I think, quite unusual. Had you read other stories by him? I've read quite a lot of him. I think he's one of our really great writers. And what was it about this story that was so memorable? It's such an American story. It's kind of an old-fashioned American story on one level. It uses some boldly conventional techniques of of exposition, starting with the very opening where a lot of summarizing has to be done, which we swallow whole because he does it so well. And then seeing how he manages uh, matters of time in the story. You know, it's 1934, but it's really a contemporary story because it's from the point of view of the old FBI man who's reflecting kind of on these things. So it's bracketed that way. But within that, it moves around in units of hours and time and in units of decades. And the story reminded me of a thing that Barry Lopez once talked about, the conversation that goes on between predators and prey. Clearly, there's a sort of dialogue between the lawmen and the gangsters or whatever they are, the outlaws. Right. The story involves FBI agents who are waiting right. for a criminal waiting to show for up. Them. And they clearly have been thinking about each other from afar for a long time in, in almost a conversational way. Right. That's a great idea on the surface of it, but to do that in the level of imaginative detail that Means brings to that schema is... I think, kind of breathtaking. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you can just read it as I first read it, which is to pick it up and wonder what's going to happen. And <laughs> it's interesting that uh, always a resting topic of life and death. Right. <laughs> and who survives and who doesn't and why and how survival in this case is embedded in character. It talks about really big things. It's not a very long story. It's a very intricate story. Uh, just a lot of nesting dolls here. I read it twice in two completely different ways. I read it just as a simple reader the first time, and it worked so well on that level. And then as an examining reader, it just raised my esteem for uh, what Means had achieved. Do you think it's typical of what he does, what Means does? In many ways it is. I mean, his stories are always kind of gripping his stories. Uh, There's somewhat flaccid uh, literary fiction out there that it's remarkable to me that a story that says... uh, technically adventurous as this one is, still rests its case on storytelling. We will 
talk more after the story. And now here's Thomas McGuane reading The Tree Line, Kansas, 1934, by David Means. The Tree Line, Kansas, 1934. Five days of trading the field glasses and taking turns crawling back into the trees to smoke out of sight. Five days on surveillance, waiting to see if by some chance Carson might return to his uncle's farm. Five days of listening to the young agent named Barnes as he recited verbatim from the file. Carson has a propensity to fire warning shots. It has been speculated that Carson's limited vision in his left eye causes his shots to carry to the right of his intended target. Impulse control somewhat limited. Five days of listening to Barnes recount the pattern of heists that began down in Texas Panhandle and proceeded north all the way up to Wisconsin, then back down to Kansas, until the trail tangled up in the fumbling ineptitude of the Bureau. For five days, Barnes talked while Lee, older, hard-bitten, nodded and let the boy play out his theories. Five days reduced to a single conversation. Years later, retired, sitting on his porch, looking out at the lake while his wife clanked pots in the kitchen, whistling softly to herself, he'd know, or think he knew, that even at that moment in Kansas, turning to speak to Barnes, he'd had a sense that one day he'd be retired and reflecting on that particular point in time back near the tree line, because that was what you did after spending much of your career trying to think the way other folks might think. When you retired, you turned back into yourself and tried to settle into not thinking about the way others thought. You rested your feet and sat around tweezing apart past scenarios that had ended up with you alive and others dead, taking advantage of the fact that you were still alive while those others weren't. And in doing so, relishing with a religious sort of glory the fact that you retained the ability to look out at a lake on a clean, quiet summer day while the wind riffled the far side in a single boat oared gently, dragging a fishing line. Five days he had listened to Barnes, staying quiet, holding back on saying much until that last day when Barnes turned and said, Look, Lee, all we're doing out here is wasting time. Carson isn't coming. I mean, hell, let's face it, it's unlikely that he's going to arrive down that road. And so Lee said finally, Well, if Carson comes, it'll be because he has weighed the big risk of us being here against an even bigger payoff. As you pointed out, he's not the type who would come back just to see kinfolk. He's not the type, in Christ we've seen enough of those, who would put himself at risk to visit an uncle on a failed farm. If he comes, it'll be to get a stash of loot, no other reason. But for these guys, that's good enough. If he's got some loot out there, he'll take the risk. It's that simple. Now I'm going back to have a smoke in the trees and take a break. And without waiting for a response, he crawled through the weeds to the trees where, released from his obligations to the younger agent, he stretched his stiffness out of his legs, lit a cigarette, and felt, for the first time, the tingle deep in his gut as it went to work, zeroing in as only a gut can zero on the following particulars. 1. The imperceptibly slow shift of light over the past few days as the dirt-clawed shadows stretched across the field and then shortened gradually until, after the sun's zenith, they lengthened while the sky loosened its grip on the sun and a violet, ruddy marl blushed the horizon. Two, 
the way the road spread out of the vanishing point, exposing its mouth to the farm, while at the same time tapering back into the quivers of heat in a manner that made it hard and at times impossible to watch. Three, the sight of Carson's Uncle Vern coming out on Monday and again on Thursday, shuffling with a slight hobble, bent-backed, moving around the house and disappearing from sight for a few minutes, causing an uptick of unease in both men as they waited for him to reappear. Then, backing the tractor out with the plow attached and tilling, it seemed for the sake of toil itself, because it was clear that the land was dead and worthless, plowing the same patch on Thursday that he had plowed on Monday, sending up a cloud of dust that hovered in the air. 4. The unseemliness in an FBI agent of Barnes's occasional outbursts. Shit, what a waste of time. Always a phrase or two about the pointlessness of the assignment in relation to the use of time and to things he might otherwise be doing, e.g., tracking that syndicate thug, John Bradfield, whose file, loaded with tips, was tucked in his desk drawer back at headquarters. 5. The gradual broadening of his own awareness of the farm and its connection to the web of cat roads, as they were called, both northwest and southeast, along with even smaller roads whose purpose has been lost to time, old wagon trails and Indian paths that arrayed themselves as potential routes all the way to the outer edges of the Chicago stockyards. Off-map roads were the bane of the Bureau. These cat roads had started to impress themselves on Lee's awareness during drives back to town, passing gaps in the fence line where they emerged out of the grass. On Monday, Barnes said, So far as I can see, he has one way in and one way out, which would make Carson even more of a fool if he tried to come here to visit. On Tuesday, he said, This is a trap. One way in, one way out. He's not the type to play into a trap. That's the way it worked. An inexperienced young agent often restated what he thought was obvious about the setup, repeated the known details again and again, as if to assure himself that everything was positioned correctly, that what had been imagined in the Chicago office, using maps and line drawings, properly matched the Kansas reality. 6. A flaw inherent in the dynamic between the two partners as they lay side by side, staying as still as possible while the weeds, mostly wild oat grass with a patch of Queen Anne's lace, shifted languorously, translating the breeze on Wednesday, the only day with wind, into motion, as if the world, unfurling itself with stunning elegance, were preparing for the imminent arrival of God, or gun, his gut told him, in those exact words. Something big was coming, the wind had said. It was a sure giveaway. Any experienced lawman knew that the wind rising like that had to mean something. But Lee had been distracted by the kid. After all, you read the landscape for signs, the way a road stays quiet for a certain amount of time. A lonely weed patch in the Four Corners region that, after three days of relative calm, is suddenly darkened by one of those odd cloud formations, not a thunderhead, but a cloud that seems to refuse to achieve its full growth, giving you, as you sit in the car chewing a toothpick, a sense that something is amiss. 7. It wasn't simply what Barnes said, or his awkward inability to establish any kind of mature silence, but also the way he rounded his words, polishing them up, buffing them into a style of elocution that clashed with the landscape. 
He spoke with the sucked-in-cheeks manner of a man holding forth with unearned authority, as he said, It's highly unlikely, Lee, regarding the pattern set forth by his previous movements, that he would, alas, venture, as I've said a few times before, to risk arriving at a location known to fit into his past movements. Snapping off his clean white teeth, his voice had a gee-whizzed youthfulness until, catching hold, it shifted to take on the hard-scrabble surroundings. Then he tightened in his phrases and tried as best he could to sound world-weary, never looking at Lee at those moments, turning away from Lee's eyes, flecked gray, crinkled, and set deep in the folds of his face, old Texas lawman style, saying, Here's how I see it, sir. Carson started out a phony, just another kid trying to make a name for himself as a stick-up man, no real heart. He tried to look the Robin Hood part by handing over some cash to a few clodhopper bank customers, but by the time he got north, he had too much heat. Now he has that shoot-first style that comes out of knowing the truth. If you know the truth, you shoot first. At that point, Barnes's voice shifted again, sliding naturally into the rut of his thoughts, opening up to a deeper, more speculative tone as he droned on and on, or so it seemed to Lee, who kept his eyes on the farm, explaining how Carson was a man with a sense of self, who knew who he was in a way the old Yeggs didn't. Carson operated out of a deeper psychology, playing himself off what he knew others were thinking, not only playing the patterns of the law, which were usually pretty easy to figure out, but also what the law most likely would speculate, so that it was unlikely, say, that he'd come back around, even if there was loot involved, to dig something up at his uncle's farm, knowing instinctually that we would have it covered. Lee half listened, trying to blank out the kid's voice, focusing his attention away from the house and onto the road, which came in straight from the horizon. The horizon, he understood, was a foe. The horizon altered the odds. The horizon, always mesmerizing if stared at too long, might take over the stakeout. Lee had once been beaten by the horizon in Waco, working freelance for the governor, tracking a killer named Newfield. Two days staking on a shack until his eyes lingered too long on the horizon. Twilight and got stuck there, while his prey took advantage, and before Lee could shake himself awake, roared off in a rooster tail of dust. Barnes was still talking, saying, This guy knows we're looking for patterns, and he's even considered... I'd venture to say, the idea that we'd expect him not to come back here, and in expecting him to expect us to expect him not to come back, he'd expect that we'd take that expectation into consideration, the potential pattern, and stake out his old uncle's farm. You see, Lee, I think he has a self-awareness that a man like Hoover doesn't. And you do, Lee thought, shifting his head, nodding, feeling, again, an intense hankering for a cigarette. Years later, at his summer cottage in Wisconsin, sitting on the porch and staring out at the water, listening to Emma inside cooking or watching television, he'd go back to that conversation, holding it out for examination, and wonder if he had misstepped at that point. Shut your yap, he might have said. Clam up, kid. You can talk until you're out of words, but no matter what you might say or think, the fact that there is a chance that Carson might show up is the only thing that matters. Even later, Lee would understand that by holding back on his side of the argument, he had lawed for a much more dangerous distraction, a paternal vibration, unsettling and unspoken between the two of them. That kid was like a son to me, he told his wife. He annoyed me the way I used to annoy my old man, 
except the old man would have boxed my ears off. That afternoon, as he crawled back to Barnes, the gut feeling worked its way up his throat and struggled into his head. Note, a gut feeling finally becomes a hunch when it is transmuted into the form of clear, precise, verbal statements uttered aloud to a receptive listener, internal or external, who responds in kind. A hunch twists inside the sinews and bones, integrating itself into the physicality of the moment, whereas a gut feeling can only struggle to become a hunch, and once it does, is recognized in retrospect as a gut feeling. Before Lee could express his hunch, Barnes wiped his brow with his handkerchief and said, Jesus, Lee, where did you go? Into town for a bite? And Lee said, no, just a smoke. Anything happening out there? Barnes raised the field glasses up, lowered them, pursed his lips as if in deep thought, and then said in a newly formed, sarcastic voice, Hell, you missed the whole thing, Lee. Carson came rolling up with the entire gang. I think pretty boy Floyd was along for the ride. Women and all. They had a picnic over there by the windmill. Fried chicken, watermelon, apple pie, the works. Shot a few guns into the air in celebration. Dug up the loot. You were right about that. And took off. I let them, on account of you not being here. I said to myself, Agent Lee's smoking a few back there, and I'm not inclined to bother the man. Now, if you don't mind, I'm going to go back and have a cigarette myself. Then he crawled off through the weeds and disappeared into the trees, leaving Lee alone to watch the farm. Fate operates retroactively. By trading smoking breaks, the two men had tried to wedge apart the tedium as well as they could. Breaking the days up, sustaining attention on the field and house, according to the dictates of training, knowing that at least one of them had to keep his eyes fixed on the farm, because if they both looked away, even for a minute, it would in theory betray Agent Jones and Agent Tate, who had drawn the night watch, drinking coffee from a vacuum flask, nudging each other awake, coming out to the road in the morning, bone-tired and saying, nothing moved out there, not even the darkness, not a damn thing, a total zero. Good luck, boys. Years later, in the reductive, slowed-down replay of memory, the Buick sedan, stolen fresh off a lot in Topeka, appeared suddenly, having come in off a cat road that ran west and hit the main road a quarter of a mile from the Carson farm, deep enough in the quivering heat to provide the element of surprise. First, just a glint of chrome radiator, a spark of light where the road bled itself into plowed field. Then, in a matter of seconds, the glint turned into a full-blown automobile, swinging alongside the house, roaring to a stop, rocking heavily as it disgorged three men. Lee used the words in his report, saying, The car disgorged three men, who spread out to reconnoiter the homestead. Carson appeared a moment later, stepping from the car with his hands spread wide, limping slightly, the Michigan City ricochet wound festering, glancing around nervously as he directed the men, while Lee, hidden in the grass, instantly understood the following. A. Four years of heists and encounters with law enforcement had given Carson's men an innate sense that certain probabilities, a stakeout limited to two or three men, were best dealt with in a swift, heedless manner that included overwhelming firepower brought to bear on weary bureau men who most likely had been in surveillance mode for days, hiding themselves in the grass or behind trees. They knew we were there, Lee said later. They figured we'd be one, maybe two at the most. We were shorthanded, and they understood that fact. I froze up. 
My judgment regarding how much field was between my position and the house was skewed. I was alone, outgunned. B. As Carson's men charged forward, they felt keenly, albeit intuitively, the way surveillance compressed time, tightening it in, days of inaction punctuated only by occasional shit breaks, piss breaks, smoke breaks, and drink breaks, food breaks, and stretch breaks, interrupted only by small, inconsequential peripheral actions observed. City men came into a farm scene like fire through ice, Lee would think later. They had that city jaunt, whereas we had forgotten the way time worked outside the confinement of the farm. C. Carson's men strode ahead as if through the streets of Chicago, their black suit coats even blacker in the hazy light. They had an elegant disregard for the landscape that came from the fact that most of them had been born and raised on farms or in dusty small towns and had pushed that part of their lives behind them, learning how to stand in the city, adjusting cuffs, snapping hat brims, touching ties, while shrouding their true intentions in wisecracks, moving around constantly in order to belie the static silence of the scene at hand. While the men closed in on Lee's position, Carson stepped slowly to the right of the barn, looking down at his feet, moving despite his slight limp, with an ease that bespoke his desire, even in this setting, to look casual, lifting his head to sniff the air before continuing along the side of the house. He started at the southern end of the house, put one foot in front of the other, heel to toe, marking carefully, trying to locate the spot where the loot was buried, Lee would write in his report. Back in the tree line, Barnes had smoked two cigarettes while he took in the view. A slight gland in the trees, formed by the creek, rimmed by a small fringe of green fern. The horizon was mercifully lost in the trees, so from that vantage, factoring in his profound sense that the stakeout was futile, it was likely that he felt a deeper relaxation settle in, an all-knowing sense of calm that came from being young and inexperienced. And it was probably this, combined with the pleasure the smoke was giving him, that led him to think that the moment in hand was somehow reflective of the general state of the world. Far off, the sound of a car engine devoured by land. Far off, a muffled car door slam. Whatever had been acting on Barnes's gut over the several days of the stakeout, combined with the quiet beauty back there, amplified by the barrenness of the farm in relation to the humiliation. Yes, a stakeout was an act of humility that could easily, if not approached properly, turn to humiliation had in turn combined with a natural desire in the young agent and caused him to break free from standard operating procedure to move naturally so that the kid walked out of the tree line that day standing straight and tall, moving with a sure manner, trusting his gut, struggling ahead of his own awareness, dulled, Lee would later imagine, by the persistent tedium of a scene that had gone on, with the exception of the old man plowing on Monday and again on Thursday and the wind on Wednesday, for what had seemed to his youthful mind an eternity. He stepped forward into a single ferocious moment. He stepped forward into a fury of gunfire, while his mind, young and foolish, but beautiful nonetheless, remained partly back in the woods, taking in the solitude, pondering the way the future felt when a man was rooted to one place, waiting for an unlikely outcome, one that, rest assured, would never, ever arrive. 
That was Thomas McGuane reading The Tree Line, Kansas, 1934, by David Means. The story was published in The New Yorker in 2010. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. So, Tom, we have these two FBI guys waiting for Carson, waiting for their criminal. The setup, the story in some ways is so evocative of a certain era, maybe of filmmaking. It always makes me think of Bonnie and Clyde. Yet at the same time, there's something very non-cinematic about this story. Yes, I think that's right. I think that the kind of pauses that he takes, either in the numbered sections where he defines his terms, Mm -hmm. whether it's talking about how a hunch transmutes itself into a gut feeling. (laughs) It's forensic. Uh, That's not something you can do in cinema. That's something you can only do in our sacred practice literature. It's very internal. This is all an internal monologue. At the same time, it's stylized in the way that those movies were. Right. Well, that's a great point. It is a highly stylized story in many ways. And uh, in fact, one of the things I love about this story is it is kind of self-conscious in a way. That's pretty daring, really, to be so confident of your materials that you can step back a couple paces and say, okay, here's how we got to this point. And that's mostly in those numbered or lettered sections. I've never seen that before. Well, it's structured like an FBI report. I mean, this is obviously not the report that he wrote, but he structured it in that way. What do you think that structure adds to the telling of the story? One of the things it did for me was the story itself, a stakeout, an unexpected arrival, a death, whistles along at such speed. Without that, it does not have sufficient scrutiny to add to its gravity. I mean, let's take a simple example. There's a shooting. Somebody comes out of the hallway, shoots somebody. Well, that's really not a story. I mean, who got shot? Why did they get shot? What were the terms of 
the conflict. And he does it with such confidence and such kind of leisurely attention to the background of the situation that he must really know how much horsepower the story has underneath that to take those asides. And, of course, they're also well done and they're also interesting. One thing that really struck me in this story is that on first reading, he has a line early on where he talks about who survives and who doesn't. And right. it's signaled to you very early that someone won't survive this. And obviously our narrator, Lee, has survived it right. because he's talking and looking back on it. And yet the death to me was a total surprise. Yeah. I mean, the ending, so unexpected when it first happened. Right. I wonder why that is. Why do we just so willfully forget that we've been warned? Well, we we could have been somebody else. It could have been one of the gangsters who didn't survive. Yeah. It could have been somebody yeah. else. But I think all along he's adding to the peril of being as delusional and daydreaming as uh, Barnes is and sort of forgetting the gravity of this situation, knowing that it's dangerous, for example. But I think that's one of the reasons it works is because we can kind of drift into Barnes's point of view a little bit and find out that we were at risk as well for looking at the world that way. Right. I mean, we're waiting, too. Yeah, we know we're, we're waiting. waiting for something in we're, the story. Yeah. We just don't know exactly what's going to happen, what we're waiting right. for. The story also calls up for me the Tobias Wolf story, Bullet in the Brain. Mm -hmm. And in that case, the shot is fired early in the story. Right. And then we have all of the memory. Right. And then it hits its final target. Right. In this case, we're waiting all story for the shot to be fired. Right. It happens at the end. And we don't really know that there, a shot will be fired in, the, yeah. in, in this way. But it, it's uh, something about guns, I guess. If you got one around, yeah. <laughs> gonna, yeah. everybody's going to be watching it. Well, I asked David Means about this story and what he was thinking about when he wrote it. And he said that, among other things, he was thinking of his grandfather and of his grandfather's generation and that sort of hard-bitten reticence mm -hmm. that he had, this way of speaking very carefully and, and very little. And I wonder if you think this story would work if it were set in any other time period or whether it's really specific to that generation and that way of looking at the world. I honestly don't know. I remember reading a pioneer memoir from family of somebody near me in Montana who said, contrary to popular opinion, bars and saloons in early day Montana were quite peaceful places because everybody had a gun. <laughs> so, <laughs> so no one pulled it out. <laughs> right. Um, you know, it's like the post-World War II era where we had, you know, nuclear arms have kept mm -hmm. it pretty quiet in the world. Mm -hmm. I think this story could work at another time. Yeah, I yeah. think it's pretty universal. Maybe old men have all learned not to talk too much by the time right. they reach that age. Yeah. <laughs> Though Lee had actually learned it earlier. Well, the thing that I think that's interesting about Barnes is talking too much is that it's not blatant how he's out of line. I mean, some a lot of what he says kind of makes sense. And it's, again, this conversation between predators and prey. I mean, it's he has a lot of elaborate information, kind of learned information about how the enemy might be thinking, whereas Lee has kind of winnowed through all that, and he knows what the essentials are. And it really has to do with vigilance, in a way, and uninterrupted vigilance, which Barnes has sort of vitiated with too much thinking. Oh, he doesn't have the patience for it. Right. The whole thing about the horizon, how you can kind of get caught by the horizon. You can get mesmerized by it, Yeah. One of the things that was interesting to me rereading the story that I had thought about is the fact that in that final scene, these gunmen are closing in. Barnes comes out standing up like an idiot, gets shot. Right. We've heard so much detail. What we don't ever hear is what did Lee do? What did he do at that moment? Yeah. Yeah. So 
when you stop to think about it, he's alive. Right. He survived this. He wrote the report. He must have just stayed hidden. Well, I think he feels guilty. Right. And I think he feels guilty because he'd had that moment of sort of paternalistic tolerance for somebody who he should have shut up long ago. And that if he had not had that compassionate slip, Barnes would have survived. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if he also, he obviously has some survivor's guilt, but he, if he also feels he was a coward because he didn't do anything at the time. He didn't. I didn't sense that. I did, feel, of, I did sense that he was derelict in, in that he had, he had not taken Barnes in hand a little bit more firmly, but that he had gotten yeah. fond of him and that had really proved to be lethal for Barnes. Fond of him, but at the same time incredibly irritated by him through the entire well, story. Right, but it was parental in a way, yeah. even the irritation, I think. Yeah. You know, if they had had a more formal relationship, if she thinks he should have had, he would have said, look, you know, Shut your trap. This is a dangerous place. Don't take your mind off what we're doing here. Yeah. It's funny that this is the case that he sits on his porch and thinks about. It's obviously years, decades later. Right. He's bothered by it. He's bothered by it. Right. And the one thing he's bothered by is that he failed to prevent this when he should have known. He should have known it was coming. Yeah. Right. Kind of like he got killed on my watch. Yeah. Sort of thing. Barnes radiates victimhood to me. Just because he's foolish. I mean, there's well, that there's that moment at the end where he's foolish and is dying and yet beautiful. And it's actually the first positive thing that Lee really thinks about him. It's the first time we get you know, a sense true. that Lee yeah. looks at him and thinks of beauty. Yeah, because, you know, he's been, you know, just sort of a free associating, babbling idiot for much of the time. But then he makes goes on with that moronic joke about, yo, you missed it, Lee. The guys came and went. And it goes on way too long. I mean, he, you're, at that point, the reader himself himself or herself is annoyed with Barnes. Yeah, yeah. Not, not annoyed enough to welcome his demise. But Yeah. One thing that, that's interesting to me about the story is the different registers in the voice. You know, we have that kind of hard-bitten perspective from Lee. And at the same time, you have this highly literary language, highly written language, mm-hmm. which is ostensibly coming from him. You know, things like that, the imperceptibly slow shift of light over the past few days as the dirt-clawed shadows right. stretched across the field and then shortened gradually until... That's not language we would maybe associate with right. Lee's voice. That usually is in the listed items, too. In the listed yeah, things. That yeah, that heightened language, yeah. I mean, I wonder if that's... Obviously, that's not what was in his actual report. Right. But do you think that's Lee's voice? Do you think that's the author's voice, are we getting sort of different filters here? Do you think the things work together? I do think they work together. You know, that's really an interesting question because it's a very distinctly different voice. Yeah. At least it fulfills for me the sense that the story is attempting to be circumspect about what happened in every possible way. Mm -hmm. Thank God he didn't introduce Google Earth. (laughs) 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 But... but, uh, you sense that the author is examining the event in all the ways it could be brought to bear on what happened. Mm -hmm. And that's one of them. And I mean, I I don't know why for sure. You could say that, gee, that's a change of tone that really doesn't fit the rest of it, but I don't feel that way. And I was happy to have those kind of lyrical observations of the land and the weather and the skyscapes and things like that. That seemed to me to, to elevate the story yet again. I think you don't notice it when you're reading it first time, maybe. It's only right. when you're examining line by line for this kind of thing right, <laughs> I know. You, that you stop to think about the change right. in voice. You mentioned earlier the issue of time in this story yeah. and how time passes in different ways. And in fact, David Means said something. He said that all stories are about time. And if you don't do something with time, the story will feel too short. 
he's made every effort quite properly to detail the timescape, which is very long, from very broad strokes to really microscopic ones. Yeah. It seems to me they kind of flow together in a way that really works even at a level of casual reading. I mean, you just kind of wander back and forth through this timescape, keeping the present drama in mind throughout. So that's what must have been terribly hard to do. This is a very carefully worked piece. I mean, as a piece of fiction, I mean, it's just, you, you know, it has a lot of little tool marks all over it. Yeah. <laughs> and yet you gallop through it without noticing you that. You do, yeah. Because you go for the story. Something else I wanted to say about that, what we talked about earlier, about the notion of guilt in the story, which is at that moment at the end when Barnes comes out standing up, he has a line. He says they're closing in on Lee's position. These three guys with their guns, they're, they're heading right for him. So if Barnes hadn't come out standing up, they would have got to Lee's position. Yeah, I, I, I didn't think about that, but that's exactly right. So there's a sense that in his sort of beautiful foolishness, foolhardiness. Right. Barnes has actually saved Lee's life, perhaps. Mm -hmm. That had not occurred to me. Yeah, I mean, I didn't think about it until that third reading of looking at that line <laughs> really carefully, but I, right. I was trying to get it at this sense of why is Lee coming back to this story over and over. Right. Every time he sits on his porch and stares at the lake, he's, he's thinking about this. He's brooding and probably has been. Right. So he failed to save Barnes's life, but Barnes perhaps saved his inadvertently. Yeah. If he's guilty or if he feels guilty, that would be a sort of a logical attachment to his failure and his fatherly attitude toward Barnes and thinking that that led to his saving his own life. Right. But what, one of the things that I love about all these kind of little characterizations, I mean, the farmer who drives around his tractor, he's barely there. I can see him so clearly. Mondays and then and the Thursdays. gangsters. What, one of the things I love about the gangsters, I mean, they have all those little things touching their ties and fooling with their hats and, and I mean, shooting their cuffs. Black suits. But they're country boys. Yeah. Who, you know, they went to the city and learned all the attributes, and they're still very self-conscious about them. They're also so good at what they do. I mean, they get out of the car and they split up into three right away. This is the way wolves at my, my ranch try to get my barn cats. They right. come in in a single file, and then they fan out like this, scare <laughs> all the cats. <laughs> and and um, so I see all these people very clearly. What that moment in the story does for me is say that here we've gone through this whole story thinking that Barnes is yapping away, and it's Barnes' foolishness that gets him killed. But in fact, those gunmen knew that Lee was out there. They knew people were out there. Mm -hmm. They went straight for them. So even all of Lee's carefulness, it was flawed, too. You know, he it would was. have been got. And they foresaw that there would only be two or three guys. It would be a very lightly held yep. thing. And heedless blazing away was the way to deal with it. I think there's a very attractive ambiguity here. Yeah. Remember, remember in graduate school, we dealt so much with ambiguity. <laughs> well, here's, here's some more. <laughs> On a skewer. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. That, that that scene of the guns blazing, what's amazing to me about that scene is it feels silent, you know. It feels to me that we've suddenly gone into one of those sort of – that moment is cinematic. Yes, and it's it is. A cinematic and, and the silence is frame. what adds to it. It's like the soundtrack just died. It's completely muted somehow, whereas everything else, you've heard every little breeze twig, in the grass yeah. and every little yeah. twig snapping – Somehow That's great. I'm so glad you point that out because um, I guess I hadn't really conceptualized that. But there is a feeling of the world going silent while these final things happen that make it seem more powerful. Yeah. And we don't see them. 
No. We don't see him fall. We don't see, no. you know, where he's been shot. We don't see what the men do to him after right. anything. We don't see them leave. We don't see right. them get the loot. All of this, we just kind of cut to blank. Yeah. After we've seen so much. Yeah. You know, no, each I mean, little it's a, clot it's a, of it's dirt. It's really, really abrupt. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> it is great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Tom. Thank you. I've enjoyed this conversation. Thank you very much. great. Thomas McGuane is the author of ten novels, including The Bushwhack Piano, Nothing But Blue Skies, and Driving on the Rim. His most recent collection of stories, Crow Fair, was published last month. You can download more than 90 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast in the iTunes Store. You can download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. Subscribers to the magazine can access the digital edition for tablets and phones at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. Online, and in the digital edition, you can hear the short stories in the magazine read by their authors. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff and Alex Barron of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.